Lovely to see you here today. You look like the wind is blowing in. I was looking forward to a westerly wind coming by this time of day because I walk east to get here, but it's still the northerly. It means the westerly will be home there when I walk home, which I'm not looking forward to. Today's psalm teaches us the right way to read the Bible. There is a right way amongst all the plethora of ways that people have. There's a right way. This is the right way to read the Bible. It's a psalm that the old Anglican prayer book said to be set to be said every day of the year, every year of your life. Every day, just before the Bible readings, Old and New Testament, Anglicans are supposed to read this psalm. If ever there's an Anglican psalm, this is the Anglican psalm. This is the one that you're supposed to have read every day of your life. For Christians should read the Bible every day, and this psalm is about how you read the Bible when you read it every day, and so this is your everyday psalm. So this psalm teaches us the right way to read the Bible. There is the right way and the wrong way, and the psalm reminds us of the dreadful consequences of reading the Bible the wrong way, and so encourages us to read it the right way. Now, the right way, wrong way isn't an intellectual issue, as if Bible reading is an intellectual puzzle or a particular tradition of interpretation that you should follow or some kind of clever literary theory that you learnt when you did English at university. The right-wrong way is a spiritual and moral issue, an obedience and humility issue. It's the opposite of a rebellious unbelief issue. The psalm starts with the call to joy. Verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Again, verse 2, giving thanks with a joyful noise. We're not talking here of Bible reading as the dire struggle of hard, unrewarding work, as the legal obligation of the unpleasant task that Christians have to do, necessary to be a person acceptable to God. This psalm is directed to the joy of relationship with God. Notice to whom the psalm is addressed. It's written to the people of God. And so verse 6 talks about our maker. Because he's the creator of all people, because he has made Israel. And so verse 7 talks about our God, the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Because Israel knew that of all the people, they were his people and he was their God. And so verse 1, the rock of our salvation they were the ones who could and would verse 2 enter into his presence or verse 1 and 2 make the joyful noise to him but there are a couple of other things the psalm says about them they're the people of song not all people sing to their God not all people rejoice in the presence of their God Not all religions are religions of music and joy. The Taliban, they ban music. But Israel were to sing with joy and pleasure as they entered into his presence. They were to express their emotions in music, especially of joy and thankfulness in the safety and security of their relationship with God. Israel and Christians 
are people who are whole people, full of emotions as well as their mind, and express their relationship emotionally as well as mentally in their obedience to God. We are to enjoy our emotions and we express our emotions in that wonderful gift that God has given us called music, whereby you as a person can integrate through the words and the sounds what you believe as you share it with each other and the presence of God. Thirdly, they were to be people of humility. For notice, while they enter into his presence with joy, yet they, verse 6, to worship, to bow down, to kneel. They were never to lose their sense of awe in the presence of God. In their safety and in their security in him, in their joy and in their thankfulness, they were not to lose their respect, their fear of him, that sense of fear and respect. It's, it's a difficult balance at one level to enter in with happiness and joy to sing and yet in humility to kneel down and bow down, but it's something that we know in reality. It may be hard to hold in our head, but the practice is simple. Watch a small child with its father, full of joy and loving confidence in the relationship, but at the same time living under the protective power and strength of that relationship so that they continue to respect that child. I had great fun the other night I went to a school production and had one of my little granddaughters spend the whole evening sitting on my knee. It was a very scary production of The Wizard of Oz. So every now and then I would ask her whether she was scared because there was this cuddling in little moments when the scary bits came and she continued to profess that she wasn't scared. Uh, and of course she wasn't. She was in her grandfather's arms, in this big, protective, huge body that I am compared to this little thing that she is. When the Wicked Witch uh, was finally annihilated, in case you've never known, that's what happens to the Wicked Witch. When the Wicked Witch was finally annihilated, she looked at me and said, Grandpa, are you scared? The psalmist gives us reasons for praising God. Can you see what the psalm says about God? He's, verse 1, the rock of our salvation. A rock is a standard image of safety, of security, like the castle. The rock of salvation is the place where you can run and be rescued and find safety. He's, verse 3, the God, the great God and King. Whatever other gods there may be or may not be, he's the great king and God above them all. He is the Lord, Yahweh. He is king of kings and Lord of lords and God of gods. He is the one over and above all. And, verses 4 and 5, his hands, his hands have made everything. And so he owns the whole of creation. In his hands are the depths, in his hands are the heights, the seas, the dry land. They're all his because he made them. We could at this point burst into an old song, he's got the whole world in his hands, but we won't because there's a couple of people who don't know it. We wouldn't want to embarrass them. But the truth is there in the song. He has got the whole world in his hands. Fourth reason forgiven is because he is our 
Verse 1, he's our rock. Verse 6, he's our maker. Verse 7, he's our God. We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his, of his hand. The psalmist was saying that the God of all the world, the creator of everything that there is, the, the God of gods and the ruler and owner of everything is our God. And we are his people. He who rules the universe loves us and has saved us. And so we are his people. And because we're his people, let's go into his presence with song and with joyful gusto. In a sense, the psalm could finish at that point. Verses 1 to 7 is just a wonderful invitation to praise our God. And many people, that's where the psalm does finish as far as they're concerned. In fact, modern prayer book versions have actually edited the psalm to finish at verse 7. But so far the psalmist has only just set the scene for what he really wants to say. The point of the psalm is the rest of the psalm, 8 to 11. That's what the psalm is really about. And to finish it just at verse 7 is to miss the point of the psalm, for the psalm is about the false humility of worship. For the call to worship is so often misunderstood. Grasping the joy and pleasure of God's people, freely entering into his presence, many people think that worshipping him is simply bowing down, kneeling, singing, making noise. They think that his awesome power and might is now of no consequence to our relationship and that God will accept us into his presence as joyfully as we would want to enter his presence just by us coming and singing together we are worshipping God. And so there are, literally there are prayer books and hymn books that have omitted verses 7b today from there on that part 8, 9, 10, 11, they've just cut those out of the psalm. Because all we need to know about worshipping God is how to sing. In fact, we have what in some churches they call worship leaders. Uh, it's a dreadful blasphemous title that I hope you don't have in your church because there's only one true worship leader, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But leaving aside the terrible heresy of the title worship leader, it says dreadful things about the nature of worship because the worship leader is the song leader. Oh, he prays and does other things, but the worship leader is verses 1 to 7a of this psalm without any acknowledgement of what happens afterwards. I'm all for the joy in singing. I love singing and I love rejoicing in it and I sound terrific in the bathroom and the shower where nowhere else can hear me. And I, I love the singing, the praises of God and often walking across Piedmont Bridge, that's what I'm doing to the embarrassment of my children and the uh, shock and horror of the other people that I'm walking past. I have no problem about doing that and sharing in the emotions, but that's not worship, that's me singing. That's me singing the praises of God. That's not what it is. And there are other people who think unless you are actually kneeling down and bowing down, you're not worshipping. 
And so churches have got kneelers all through so as the people can worship God properly by kneeling. And kneeling is perfectly all right. It's a perfectly good and appropriate thing to do. It just gets harder as you get older. As the arthritis comes in and enters in, the kneeling activity, that means old people with lots of arthritis can't worship God. Now, it has misunderstood the nature of what we're talking about. Verses 1 to 7 is an introduction to the real message of worship, namely hearing his voice for the worship of God is not formalism kneeling and bowing down it's not enthusiasm singing with joy and making a joyful noise but hearing and obeying God's voice doing what he wants us to do I don't worship God by singing with rapture how great thou art while ignoring his greatness by disobeying everything he says to do. If God is the great God of all gods, the ruler, the creator of the universe, then I show that and acknowledge that by seeking to find out what he wants, what he wants me to do, and to then doing it with all my heart. I'll listen with eager, obedient care to every word he has to say, if he is the God of gods and Lord of lords and King of kings. In case you don't see this, the psalm points out the classic failure, namely Israel's failure to worship God. For when the word of God came to them in the wilderness, look what they did in verse 8. They hardened their hearts. Look what they did in verse 9. They tested God to prove him. Instead of accepting God's word in grateful obedience that he should, should deign to speak to them at all, Instead of looking for opportunity to obey him in what he said and trust him in all his ways, they disobeyed what God wanted them to do and they put God on on trial. This isn't worshipping God. This isn't the people truly bowing and kneeling, joyfully thanking God, recognising that he's the Lord and Lord and King of Kings and Creator and Ruler of the whole university. You can't believe that God is God and reject his word. You can't believe that God is God and not listen to his word when he speaks. You can't believe that God is God and take hold of his message and then do what you wanted to do anyway. So the psalmist reminds us of God's reaction. His reaction to this willful, rebellious, unbelieving people. There are two awful words there. This is why people don't like the psalm. They hate the psalm because, well, the second half of the psalm, that's why they edit it out. That's why they censor it. Because those two dreadful words, loathing and swearing. God, verse 10, loathed them, his people. The ones he'd rescued out of Egypt. The ones he'd married at Mount Sinai, he now loathed their willful ignorance of him. It's not an ignorance in sense of not knowing, it's an ignorance in sense of turning their back on him. And so in verse 11, he swore in his anger. He swore his intention that they would never enter his rest. Never enter into the promised land of abundance, pleasure and prosperity that he had prepared for them. The land where they'd be at home, the paradise of Eden, where they would be his people and he would be their God. No, you're not getting there. The fact that God loathed his people 
and swore in his wrath is what the psalm is about. To censor that part of the psalm is to significantly and seriously misunderstand the psalmist and is to do the very thing that the psalm is speaking against. It's a terrible irony when people chop off bits of the word of God that are about not listening to the word of God. Because that's what they've done. But there's an important word that I've left out, an important word for the writer and for Christians and for our Bible reading. It's the word in verse 7, today. It's a wonderful word. Today when you hear his voice. They heard it out in the wilderness led by Moses more than a thousand years before Christ. God's word became flesh and dwelt amongst us when Christ came a thousand or more years later. They heard it in many and various ways and times by prophets. But since Christ, we hear God's word in the gospel found in the Bible. For in the last days, God has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he has created the world. Today, when you hear his voice, is today when you hear his voice. For every day is today, and when you hear his voice today, then today is the day not to harden your heart. For the psalm was written, you see, not in Moses' day, nor in Jesus' day. The psalm was written in David's day. What would it have meant for David and his contemporaries? Moses' generation, God loathed, and they all perished in the wilderness. David's generation, now they were living in the promised land. They were living in the land of rest. So what relevance has the word of God to Moses got to David? Got to David's own people. Well, David says, verse 7, today. Today when you hear his voice, don't be like them back in the wilderness. Because when they wouldn't hear his voice in their day, they failed to enter God's rest. That is, though in David's day they were living in the land of rest, yet there was still a rest of God that they could enter into or miss out. They were physically in the land of rest, but there is a spiritual land of rest of which that physical land of rest was a symbol and a sign. And so they could still be cut off from the presence of God, though they lived in the land of rest. And so he wrote, Today... When you hear the voice, don't be like Moses' generation. Don't harden your hearts. Don't be rebellious against God. Don't put God to the test, but listen. Listen with faith. Listen with obedience. Listen to what God is saying to you today and every day. And that's why it's called the Everyday Psalm. That's why the prayer book put it down to be read every day. And you read it every day just before you read the Old and New Testament. Because this is the psalm that gets you ready to listen to the word of God. So we're just about to read the Bible. Now remember, today, when you hear the voice of God, don't be like them. Remember what happened to them? Don't be like that. Now, let's turn up our passage and read it. 
You see, this is the psalm that tells you how to read the Bible every day. For whenever we wake up and face a new day, it's today. Now, today is yesterday, tomorrow, and today is today, now, for every day. But from the creation of the world till the day of Christ's return in judgment, every day is today. And God's rest from his labour is still open to us to enter into from the beginning of creation till now. For there remains the Sabbath day of God's rest. And this is the day, today, that we must enter into that rest, strive to enter, not tomorrow or later or yesterday, but now, whenever you hear the word of God, whenever you hear the voice of God, that is the time to listen and obey. The opportunity isn't endless, There will come a day when you do not hear the word of God. You'll be in your coffin. The rest of us will hear the word of God being spoken at your funeral, but you won't be hearing the word of God. That day is now over. That time is now for the anger of God can be coming at that day. We may be excluding ourselves permanently from his rest. Now here is the argument that I've been giving you from Hebrews 3 and 4 in case you didn't recognise it. Let's turn it up. Page 1194. 1194 in our Bibles is the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4. And in a sense, this whole Bible study could have been given out of there rather than out of Psalm 95 because even as you look at it, starting from verse 7, you'll see that Psalm 95 is constantly being quoted in this. You see verses 7 to 11, that's Psalm 95. Verse 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 3, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then down verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. And then down verse 7, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Psalm 95 is what Hebrews 3 and 4 is about. And I've been giving you some of the argument that is there. Look with me through this argument that is there because it really is about the word of God. And so in chapter 3, verse 7, 11, well, that's just the quoting the psalm, isn't it? But look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, speaks of the whole subject of the way the rest is still there, available to us. Verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us, justice to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened For we who have believed enter that rest 
as he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he's spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested from the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage we read, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. The living nature of the word of God is critical at this point. God spoke to Moses a word for David's day. David spoke his word for Jesus' day. And Jesus spoke his word for our day. What is the day in which the word of God is spoken? It's called today. That's the day. That's the nature of the word of God. See, the word of God is not to be ignored. It's not to be put on the back burner of later consideration. You mustn't procrastinate about the word of God. It's the command of God to us now, today. For the word of God isn't limited to time and place. It may have been delivered to Moses, to David, at particular times and places, but it's not limited to those times and places. It's now. It's applicable now. It's to be obeyed now. So much of the modern Pharisaism is to avoid the word of God by saying, well now, this was written to a culture back then and we're not like that so you don't have to worry about that bit. And there's all kinds of people who remove bits they don't like by saying, well it was written back there for then and has no relevance for us now. But that is not to understand the nature of the word of God. Look then at verse 11 and I'll show you the nature of the word of God. Chapter 4 verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. As we deal with the word of God, so we deal with God. Our attitude to the word of God is like a litmus test. It's indicative of our attitude to God himself. But more seriously, is indicative of God's attitude to us. So the essence of the right way of reading the Bible is spiritual. Is believing, trusting, accepting, seen in quick and ready responsiveness to whatever God says to us. Here is the true worship of God, the true recognition of His greatness. If God says it to me, I'm going to do it. That is the true worship of God. And so there are two commands we can take from this psalm and from Hebrews 4. 
From the psalm we're commanded to come, let us sing to the Lord, sing with joy and pleasure, sing with thankful gratitude in our hearts, sing of our salvation because we're entering into the rest of God for which we have been created and for which Jesus Christ died and rose again and has given us. But sing bowing down in humble acceptance of God, kneeling before the Lord our maker in our heart, not hardening our hearts, but listening to his word, listening obediently from the heart, eager to do whatever he says to do today and every day. But there's a second command that Hebrews gives us. It's a command to exhort one another. Go back to chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today is the day. And so today is the day to say to you, well done, you've come to Bible study. This is good news, isn't it? Here we are, listening to the word of God. Praise God that he has brought you here. This is marvellous news that you are here, and I'm very glad that you're here, wanting to hear what God has to say. Well done. Come next week, but today, when you hear what is being said, make sure you put it into practice. Make sure you go your way singing with thankfulness and joyfulness to God for the salvation that he's given to you. Make sure that you don't harden your heart against what he says. But be keen to hear what he says that you may put it into practice. Today, don't harden your heart. Today, remove disobedience from your life. Today, listen to God's word with faith. Well done. You are listening to what God has to say. Now make sure you listen with obedient, soft hearts so that you may live to his praise and glory. Isn't it a wonderful psalm? It's a lovely psalm, isn't it? And isn't it nice to come to Bible study and not be roused on for doing the wrong thing? Well done, you've done the right thing. But what you have done that is right, do more. (laughs) Because you can listen with a hardened heart, can't you? And that is of no point and benefit to you. So let me encourage you, because the passage tells me to, not to tolerate disobedience willfulness, but rejoice in hearing God's word and look forward to putting it into operation in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your word, by whom you created the universe and who in becoming flesh has spoken to us of your grace and your truth. For in his death and by his resurrection, we have seen your faithfulness and we've experienced your grace, grace upon grace, mercy and forgiveness and love and kindness because you are our rock, you are our saviour. And we thank you, Father, for inviting us into your rest. So pour your spirit into our hearts, Father that we may ever be responsive to your word, that we may ever listen with softened hearts, eager to do what it is you would have us to do, eager to learn what will please you, that we may live to your pleasure. And so give to us that softening of heart, that today and every day 
we may hear your word and live in your rest. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.